So I think let's get started. Um, I know that for those of you who have young children, you got to take off at a certain time to get kids, so feel free to leave if you need to, and we'll try to end probably in about an hour is probably how long I'll talk. And then I'm happy to answer questions or chat afterwards if you want. Um, but uh, let me pray, and then I'll introduce myself. <sighs> Father God, thank you for Mount Hermon and the beauty um, that is not just the creation that you've made, but the the beauty and the people that are up here. Thank you for the opportunity to just get away, retreat, be with you, um, be challenged and to grow and to be with your people. Lord, I pray for these people here, Lord, that you bless them for the rest of their time here. They may be here with family members or friends and, and uh, pray that bonds are strengthened and um, bless our time together, Lord. I, I count these people brave to want to come to this kind of seminar, and I don't know their stories, but you do, Lord. And some of them may be hurting. Some of them know people who are hurting, and so I, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you comfort them and give them hope, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. So welcome, welcome, welcome. Feel free to get up. I'll just keep chatting away. Don't worry about it. Um, so my name's Alita Lewis. Um, I'm a licensed marriage family therapist, and I've been working in the field almost 30 years now. Um, I live in town. I live in Santa Cruz. Um, I have worked up at Mount Hermon on and off since the late 80s. I was a summer staffer. Met my husband up here, you know, Mount Hormone and all. <laughs> so it's been good to me. And so, you know, forever indebted to Mount Hermon. Lewis, Alita Lewis. Um, my husband's a pastor in town as well, and we planted a church about 16 years ago, so I guess we're official, right? We've planted churches as well, so I, I guess that makes, you know, us official. Um, but I, I, why this topic, Alita? You may think, oh dear, this is uh, rough to talk about. Um, but I can say that in my practice, so I work in private practice, and I see all aged people. I would say that in the last couple years, I have had more people that I've had to take into a 72-hour hold than my entire career. So um, it's an issue. People are struggling. It's, they're struggling to find hope and solutions and ways out. Um, I can also tell you that I can stand here because I've personally experienced um, someone I care about who've completed suicide. My brother last Christmas um, completed suicide. And so it's not just a topic that I want um, to help you understand so that you can save people, but I understand the pain of what it's like when someone you love makes that decision. So um, thank you for coming. I really believe that this is something that's preventable. And with a little information, we can make a difference. So I love that you guys are here. Um, so before we talk about, um, so really this is going to be about prevention. We're going to spend a lot of time on prevention so that you can have some tools to understand what to do in these situations if you happen to have people that come into contact with you who are struggling. Um, but let's start off with some language. So a lot of times we'll hear this in the media, we'll, we'll uh, 
people will say language like um, so-and-so committed suicide. That's like a common way that we talk about this. And I can tell you that as a profession, we're trying to move away from the word committed because I, this is my interpretation, is that that sounds um, more of a criminalized sort of term. Does that make sense? So committed murder, committed suicide. And so the language that we're using now is attempted and completed, completed suicide. Um, and the news outlets are hopefully changing and just saying dying by suicide um, so that we can take some of that stigma out of it for people. Um, so before we get into prevention, just statistics, which are dire, unfortunately, but these numbers are from the CDC, and this is from 2020, our most favorite year. <laughs> uh, stats say that 12.2 um, million people thought about suicide. And out of that 12.2, 3.2 planned to take their life, and 1.2 attempted suicide in that year. This, this is the United States, okay? And then out of that 1.2 attempted, 46,000 completed suicide. And we know that there's about one death every 11 minutes to suicide. And this is, this is a problem. Um, it's not just me and my practice. It's, uh, I have friends who are clinicians and we do consult groups. And, you know, we've always had to manage people who are struggling um, with not wanting to be alive, but it's, it's definitely increased for us. And some groups, um, unfortunately, have higher statistics. There are subgroups that are more vulnerable. So, um, you know, if you are a, a part of an indigenous people group, if, if you're um, part of different tribes, Alaska Natives also struggle. Um, veterans are, have a higher percentage within them. They've been through a lot of stuff. And so it's hard to process that. Um, people who are in rural areas, um, young people who are trying to figure out who they are, their gender, their um, sexuality, you know, when that is something they're wrestling with, it's, it's very difficult to find a way out. And this is the stat that I feel most sad about is that children's numbers are really growing. Young children. It's the second leading cause of death for 10 to 24-year-olds. That's kind of, that's monumental. Um, so even though these are daunting statistics, again, we can do something about this. Uh, suicide is a, a permanent solution for a temporary problem, right? But when you're that um, hopeless, and obviously there are spiritual elements that convince us that, this is, that people will be better off without us. Um, this is what they feel is their way out. Um, so what I want to talk about basically are three things for prevention. We have risk factors, warning signs, in the moment things that you're seeing, and then protective factors. So we're going to help you understand what those three things are. And when you want to think about trying to help someone or pay attention to someone who may be vulnerable right now, you want to think about these three factors, okay? So you're kind of, 
when I was in grad school, when I was in seminary, we were sadly poorly prepared for this. Um, the best practices for a lot of my years working was to create a piece of paper that said I, that they would sign, <laughs> that they would sign and say I would not harm myself between this session and next session, and if I ever felt like that, here are three numbers I would call. That doesn't stop anybody. No. But that's kind of the training we had, which is so sad, right? Um, so I want to teach you best practices. I want you to have these so that you can know, have better eyes to do something about this. So think puzzle pieces. This is not a simple, what, I saw this one thing, I know this one thing, so this person must be really vulnerable to suicide. And that's not the case. It actually requires more presence, more paying attention. Because it's, it's putting together all of these things to then kind of really know where someone is at. So I wish I had this perfect little like template to tell you, but it's not. So, um, but there are categories, so that kind of helps the thought process. Okay, so we're gonna talk about risk factors. Um, this is uh, things that kind of make up the person and who they are. Generally, these risk factors are something that um, may be obvious and some things that are not. Um, this, a very strong indicator to, um, and probably the strongest indicator to someone um, wanting to possibly complete suicide is that they've attempted before. If you know someone who has attempted before, not planned, not thought about, but attempted and survived, that s significantly increases the likelihood of them completing suicide. My brother attempted two times before he completed. So with each time someone attempts, those stats go up, okay? So, um, you know, if you may not know that information, but if you do, then you really wanna pay attention to it, okay? That's, that's really important. Um, access to lethal means. Um, if you're that desperate and you have something that can take away that pain immediately, that impulse, may be acted on. But we know if we don't have access to that, it's less likely. Lethal, lethal. so guns, knives, a car can be really dangerous. Um, so um, yeah, that, that, that increases. So if you know that there are guns in the home and you know this person has attempted before, then you pay attention. That's really important, okay? Um, Mental health issues. We know that about 90% of people who complete suicide have been diagnosed with some sort of mental health issue. Now what I want to like reassure you is not everyone with a mental health issue is suicidal, right? It's kind of, similarly, um, people who abuse children, 99% have been abused. But it doesn't mean that because you've been abused that you are going to abuse. Same with like mental health issues and suicidality. Does that make sense? Um, but that's a factor. If you know my brother had severe mental health issues, like if all the things we're going to talk about, I'm like, he had a lot of these risk factors. Okay, so psychologically, what are they like? Someone who has some risk factors um, outside of a, a, a mental diagnosis. These are just like impulsivity, um, aggress aggression, um, 
maybe they have patterns of hopelessness. They just kind of like, ugh, they're just meh in life. Not enough to be diagnosed, but that's just somewhat of kind of how they are, how they um, move about the world. Um, what's their executive functioning? So th basically what that means is our, our prefrontal cortex is where all of our executive functioning works. That's like the higher decision making. And it's the last place that finishes growth, which I just think, Lord, really? Why? So teenagers have another 10 years probably. I mean, it's the late 20s until our brains are done developing. I just think. And I like, physically, I look like this as a 12-year-old. I had another double that until I stop, right? So um, what's their decision-making? What's their problem-solving ability? What's their cognitive control? Um, what's their verbal fluency? How do they... Do they communicate well, right? Can they express themselves well? How self-aware are they? If, the, if those are low, right, if they're not very self-aware, if they're impulsive, if it's difficult for them to make decisions or problem solve, those are risk factors. Because again, those play into this hopelessness because they feel stuck. And then how are they interacting with other people? Um, what's their stress response in a moment that's difficult? Is it really reactive? How flexible are they? Can they adapt? Right? Um, and if they don't know how to be flexible, do they know how to ask for help? Can they advocate for themselves? That's a big one, right? You can, you can have all these strengths psychologically. You may even be in community. You may be that person that everyone looks up to, but you don't know how to say help. There are obstacles to that. Right? That adds pressure. That isolation adds pressure to that person. And then they're just trying to figure it out on their own. And we know, I know, personally, if I'm really wrestling with lies and evil is a part of that and I have no one else to shine truth and love and care and be present with me, I, you can believe a lot of crazy stuff by yourself, right? Oh, I, I'm just saying that if, if they don't know how to connect with other people, if they don't know how to ask for help, then look here, we could be surrounded by people and we can be isolated, right? If no one knows our soul, we're vulnerable. This is the tricky part about assessment <laughs> because people lie. And that's what we learn really in th as, th as clinicians is that our clients are not gonna tell us the truth all the time, right? And that will be true with people who you love who are struggling because they want to take care of you. They don't wanna be a burden. Right? Um, it's not, and maybe it's because they don't want to be stopped, but I think a lot of times it's about not wanting to be a bother to other people. Okay, so then family history. This is a, this is a risk factor. If they have family members who have completed suicide, that increases the likelihood. And if you have been a victim of some sort of abuse in childhood, that increases your likelihood. Again, it doesn't mean that one factor means now that you're gonna complete suicide. It's just one of those vulnerabilities. 
okay? Um, and, and then look at their life history. So that's all kind of their character, but then what, what's been their life like? Um, have they had to deal with any acute stressors? Maybe they lost their job. Maybe they, be, you know, um, lost their home. They're houseless. They may have someone, you know, divorce them. They're, there's, there's acute um, stressors that they've had to deal with throughout their life. A victim of a fire, right? There's a lot of people that have had to survive, um, you know, natural disaster, lose everything. We had um, a few families in our, our, our little church who lost their home to fire when Santa Cruz got hit. And then what about chronic stressors in their life? Maybe they have chronic pain. Maybe they have some sort of physical illness. Um, Maybe they are in a home where uh, interpersonal abuse is going on all the time. And they're having to negotiate through that. Um, and then maybe they've experienced, you know, um, it's really the acute stressors, but then the tra traumatic events that are more like current. Did it just happen? So not just a, an acute thing that they experienced a while ago, Maybe they were bullied, right? These are all factors you can kind of think about. So those are the, you want to kind of look at all of those factors, okay? And they all kind of come together in this unique person. And so you just want to kind of pay attention to, you know, you might even be thinking of someone in your life going, oh, yeah, that's one, oh, yeah, okay. So you just know that they may be vulnerable to a, an acute stressor. Um, maybe some traumatic event happens and their resiliency is not going to, it's going to take them longer. And so you might want to pay attention a little bit more because they've, they had vulnerabilities going into this moment. Um, so those are all kind of things to think about, those risk factors. Now we're going to talk about warning signs. These are things that are happening in the moment um, that you want to pay attention to. So obviously if they're talking about not wanting to die or not wanting to live, wanting to die, wanting to kill themselves. I would say that there is a difference between wanting to die and not wanting to live. I know that's parsing things. But that sometimes people don't want to live, but they don't really want to die. So these people, I would classify them, depending upon all these other factors, they, it's more suicidal ideation. So they're thinking, talking, there's no planning, right? It's just the hopelessness of life. Life is too much, but they don't really want to die. Um, okay, what about just feeling hopeless? They're expressing hopelessness. They're, they're expressing not real, a lot of reasons to live. Um, they may feel uh, a lot of great guilt and shame. They might be expressing that. They may be talking about feeling trapped, that there's no solutions. You know, there are a lot of people underneath a lot of stress trying to just survive and put food on the table and take care of those they love. And that chronic stress and not feeling like there's a way to get out of that chronic stress, whether there are systems in place that get in the way of that, uh, it's hard to keep going, okay? 
They may feel like they're just an unbearable pain. They may be expressing that. They may say they're being a burden to other people. People would be better without them around. There may be a shift in their substance um, use. You know, maybe they just had a glass of wine at night every once in a while, and now it's a lot more. Um, they might be acting anxious and agitated. They may be withdrawing from people, um, family and friends. Um, a sign of depression, not necessarily suicidality, is um, the things that they normally love and feel like bring them joy no longer do that. So that could be a warning sign, too, to pay attention to, right? Normally, they love playing music, and they haven't picked up their guitar in weeks. So that's a, ooh, what's that about? Um, there's probably going to be changes in their eating and their sleeping. E either too much or too little on both of those. Um, they may be sleeping too much. They may be sleeping too little. They may be eating too much, eating too little. Um, they may be taking more physical risks that they normally wouldn't do. You know, they're um, driving a little bit more carelessly, not being as thoughtful as they normally would. Um, they may be talking about death a lot. They may be Googling about death. Uh, they may be making plans, um, looking for ways to, to take their life. They may, giving, they may be giving away things, important things, right? They're, in a sense, they're trying to wrap up the things that they want to have happen while they're here. So they might be saying goodbye. If you get a random phone call from someone out of the blue, you might want to say, how are you doing? You know? Um, they're putting things in order. Does that make sense? That could be a will. That could be, I really want to make sure I see this person. I, uh, writing notes. Um, so those are all kind of warning signs that you want to pay attention to. Again, making a will does not mean an equal to someone wanting to complete suicide, right? But the timing of it, their age, what's happening in their life. This is difficult because there's not, a, like, I can't tell you this is the thing you do and then it's, then it's prevented, right? There needs to be some discernment and some education and paying attention. Um, okay, so what are the protective factors? These are the ones that I'm like, oh, I can write this one down. And I'm like, okay. These are the good things that are happening in their life. So social support. They have people in their life. They're socially connected. They're a part of a greater community. Um, and they're known by that community. They have relationships. People know their stuff, good and ugly. That's good. That's protective. Uh, having children in the home are protective. Parents, single parents, they don't want to leave their kid to whatever is next without them there. That's protective. Having family, uh, family and friends support. So even though you're in a community and you're known and they know you, but people have been rallying around this person. That's protective. Because maybe they've been struggling for a while. They've been wrestling, right? Um, what are their psychological factors? Remember we talked about what are the risk factors. Okay, so who are they normally? Maybe they are really good problem solvers. Maybe they're good at decision-making, they communicate well. It's kind of the flip, right, of the, of the risk factors. 
do they have strong life skills? Do they um, manage well? Are they able to pay their bills? I mean, even if you, let's say, are working, just getting stuff done to manage life, um, if they're able to manage life relatively well, then that's a, that's a good thing because those are little things that can add to, if that's a struggle, that goes on to the not great pile. So um, maybe they normally have a very positive outlook on life. Um, they're self-aware, that's protective. Um, what are their spiritual factors? Um, what's their relationship like with the Lord? Is that intimate? Um, what do they think about God? Is it just keep the guy happy, otherwise, oh. right? That doesn't help. No, if anything, that's just like I'm on my own and God's out to get me. That's probably not awesome, right? Um, are they involved in a faith community? Um, we know that um, a deep, intimate walk with Jesus brings meaning and purpose that is beyond what we feel in the moment. I, when I was, it took me 11 years to get licensed. I had three kids in the process and I was like, dear Lord, why am I doing this? I can help people in other ways. How about, you know, I already had my master's degree. I was like, this license business is for the birds. But I knew, he's like, no, come on. I know this is hard. We're in a valley. I'm with you. We'll get through. Now, I never became to the point where I was suicidal, but I definitely wanted to give up. <laughs> but the Lord gives deep meaning and purpose beyond where we're at. And if that's well established, that's protective. Okay, so we got risk factors, we got current warning signs, we got protective factors. Now, what the heck do we do, Alita? <laughs> what is this about? Um, well, a whole lot of praying, right? Um, it's about observing and listening and being present. And something to think about, I don't know about you, but we can live very, very busy lives we can be filled with a lot of really important, meaningful things to do. And I think that those, that can be an obstacle to really being intimate with people and to know what's happening in their life. Our, because, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So we're going to work hard. We're, and some of it is because we just have to to survive. But there might be obstacles to be able to know and assess these things. So think about that for yourself. It's, there's no judgment on that. It's just to think, if you're wanting to help someone in this but have no time, that's a tall ask for yourself. And I can say that um, there are other obstacles too. Like you might know someone is really struggling. And that's, um, I can tell you as a clinician, knowing I have a client that's that vulnerable, it's, you want to like duck and roll. You're like, oh my God, okay, this is scary and hard and feels life-threatening. And I know what to do. So I just want to normalize that feeling. It's, it's almost like we want to kind of deny or minimize a little bit. Does that make sense? It's, it just feels like too much. And I want you to know that you're one piece to what the Lord is doing. Um, but I do want you to think that you may be the only person that is paying attention. So I want you to assume you're the only person. Don't, that's another thing is you're like, oh, but their mom must know. Oh, they've got whatever. If you see something, say something, okay? 
Another thing when you're talking and listening and being present with people is I don't want you to ever promise to keep a secret. Do not do that. You set yourself up for failure, okay? Because you have two options, right? Either you hold their secret and you do like because you want to be integrous and then they do something dire and then how do you deal with that for yourself? How do you explain that to other people, right? You're working with young people. Maybe you're a teacher, you know something, or you have a, a niece or a nephew and you don't tell your sibling, and they, they find out you knew something? I mean, that's just too rough. Yes? You, you mentioned how you interact with those that may, that you may notice this, these kinds of symptoms, but those closest to them are in Yes, I'm, I, yes, I'm kind of speaking to the part, um, so his question was, just for the recording, is that um, do people around that vulnerable person maybe minimize or deny or avoid? And I want to say that's possible. Because again, like, I have kids who have wrestled with their own mental health stuff. They're, they just inherited it, you know? My brother had severe mental health issues, and, you know, we get this from the people before us as well. <laughs> So, um, yeah, uh, so, so how do you support and help people who are struggling? Especially if you have your own stuff you're trying to avoid, right? You have stuff you're like, I don't want to look at that. So when you're with, it's really challenging to sit with people who are, who are struggling if you have your own stuff you're just trying to hold the lid down on. That's another obstacle to being with people, right? It's because it's just too much, becomes too much. Um, so then there's a avoidance maybe or minimizing like rationalizing because you have to kind of live with the fact that I see something and that scares me but that feels t yeah right it's right Right, family situations can be difficult, right? Because there's all those family roles and rules that happen. And so you may have to work against what is expected of you, what you've normally done. I mean, this is all hands on deck, people. Um, I tell my clients, I go, I, you can be super pissed at me. As you can fire me, I don't care. <laughs> I'd rather have you get to make that decision. So... Again, it is complicated in a family system. It does make it a little bit unique. And if you want to talk to me a little bit about that more after, I'm happy to kind of dig into that. But that does add a wrinkle and an obstacle, possibly, to be able to know all this information and do something about. Um, as you sit and listen, it's good to ask, do you have a plan? Have you thought about, have you thought about this? And if it's a yes, then you want to, as best you can, assess the lethality of that plan, right? And how accessible is that plan? If it's highly lethal and very accessible, then the faster you work, right? You might have to call the police in that situation. You might have to call, a lot of times, certain areas have uh, mobile crisis units. I would prefer that, honestly. Um, we don't need to involve the police in something that's mental health. Um, so I would say that, um, you know, it really depends. So you want to ask, do you have a plan? How, 
how lethal is it? Thinking, okay, I had a kid who wanted to, um, his plan was to dig a big hole and then fall into it on his parents' property. That was a new one for me. That was never. So I go, okay, that takes a long time. That's a plan that's going to take weeks. So I wasn't, even though he was very clear about that plan, and he had a lot of vulnerabilities, he had a lot of risk factors, he had some protective, his, his parents were involved in his treatment and helpful, and so we were able to, you know, I told, I, I'm not going to keep this a secret, this is a safety thing, we need to tell your mom. And he'd been digging a hole. She's like, I was wondering why I was going up the hill with those shovels, and I go, well, that's why. So, um, but it wasn't, um, it wasn't a gun, it wasn't loaded, it wasn't in his back pocket, you know? Like, so the lethality was a little bit lower. Um, and then the other thing I want to say is to be really cautious about weaponizing Jesus. Let me explain what I mean by that. Okay, I ultimately believe that the gospel is good news, and it doesn't just save us the first time, it saves us for our entire life. It is what we need, okay? But if they're not buying what you're selling, you got to pay attention to that. Because sometimes Jesus can be used as a club to get people to do the things we want them to do. That's not going to be helpful. It's not going to be helpful in the moment, and it's not going to be helpful as they climb out of this hole they're in. Because now, ugh, I have to do and say, and right? Does that make sense? So just be cautious. I think that when we do that in life, whether it's about suicide or something else, I think it's because we feel powerless. We want to make a difference, whatever that is. We're feeling that maybe pressure to um, get this person out of their stuckness. And I would rather have you sit with them and sit with them and sit with them and enter where they are at instead of trying to yank them to the next thing. If you can visualize that, right? And so if they are willing to stand up and walk, walk at their pace, okay? Now, obviously, if it's dire and the plan is imminent, then all hands on deck, and then you, we'll talk about what to do. But if they're just sharing their heart, then just be really thoughtful about that, okay? Um, because we can do damage in a different sort of way. So if it's a low-risk person, you know, you probably just want to check in on them every once in a while. So we're going to go low, low-risk, medium-risk, high-risk, okay? A low-risk person, um, you know, you've already identified kind of their protective factors, and you probably want to give them some hotlines, some numbers to call. Actually, July 18th, I believe, 16th, I can't. Remember, there is now a national hotline number that's 988. So you can call that. Um, there's resources on the back of your outline. There's also texting, 741-741. Um, uh, Some kids, you know, phones, that's just an app they don't really use, right, other than to text. They don't really do this very much. They don't talk. So it's helpful to have a text option for people. You might want to just um, come up with a, a basic safety plan. I'm going to go over what does a safety plan look like after I talk about the different levels, okay? So you want to encourage them maybe to get some help, um, involve a family friend, just say they're having a hard time. Um, 
right now because it can, their assessment can change. You've just kind of tried to say this is where they're at right now, but it can get worse or it can get better. But based on that, um, you want people to know that love them, involve the family member, uh, encourage them to seek help if they're not. If they have a therapist, to let the therapist know that that's what's going on. We like to know that stuff so that we can help. And at the end, I'm going to show you um, some apps that you can show them as well that are geared specifically for people who are struggling with suicidal thoughts and also just depression and that sort of thing. I can tell you about that. So if they're at moderate risk, then you're going to want to assess more than not. You want to be more attentive than not. Um, you want to increase con that contact with them, check in on them. You might want to explore uh, reasons for living. You might want to explore reasons for dying. And that might feel kind of scary, like why would you want to talk about that? They're thinking about this 24-7, if this is where they're at, if they're at this moderate level. And they're not thinking clearly. And so you want to listen and help them process and unearth things that are in there that maybe they don't know is in there. Um, you know, obviously continue to involve friends, have a safety plan, um, and still hope is a big one because that's what gets hit is the hopelessness. And um, when I have clients that are struggling, I really prioritize time to help them see who I know the Lord wants them to be, whether I use that language or not. Um, how, how this, this really difficult struggle will be used for good in the world. And that they someday may be in my seat. And so, and you might see that in people, their capability and their possibility. And that's inspiring. That's like, you see that in me? That's really helpful. Because that's not just about like how you see them right now, but that gives them hope for what could be. Yeah. Sure. Yes. Yeah, that's a little bit challenging, right? It's it is at times difficult to instill hope when I they are not a customer to Jesus. Now, sometimes I'll say, "Well, what do you do when you're not okay?" And I go, "Oh, yes. Here's my opportunity to share my hope in Jesus and how." For me, it's the root that keeps me going, um, no matter what comes in life. Because people are going to let us down. We're human. We're broken. We do dumb things. Even the best intentions don't always turn out the way we want. So, And then about weaponizing Jesus, that would be, you know, uh, saying something like, well, God doesn't want you to take your life. Um, I don't believe that uh, that is an unforgivable, unforgivable sin, but there may be people theologically who think that if you take your life, you are no longer a part of the family of God. And so they may say things like, well, if you commit suicide, or you see, I did it. I'm trying to change my language too, people. <laughs> Complete suicide. Um, well, you're not going to get to be in eternity with, with heaven. Right? That's weaponizing Jesus. Yeah. Sure. Good question. Okay, so a, a high-risk client, uh, client, person, this, all hands on deck. Um, it may be that you need to get them immediately to somewhere where they can be evaluated and be kept safe. So it may be important to think about 
looking for resources if you don't already have them, you don't know, like, because you guys live all over the place, right? And I don't know your specific neighborhood and where you would take someone who is struggling, whether it's the ER. I know town in, in town in Santa Cruz, we have a whole separate behavioral health unit that we drive people to, right? We don't go to the ER anymore. So wh where do you even go? If you have someone um, that is willing to go, that's the most ideal, right? They're not safe. They can't, uh, you just don't trust that they're going to make good decisions. I always err on the side of caution. I just do. And if the social worker and the psychiatrist there who have way more training even than me determine, um, although sometimes they're not beds, and that's, I can tell you as a clinician, very frustrating because resources are limited. Um, but then they're at least put on hold and they know that I'm taking their words seriously. Like that is, I cried for help, you did something. I feel seen, I feel loved, I feel cared for. Even if they're pissed at you, don't buy it, find. Let them be, let them be mad, okay? So a, a tip that might be helpful if you, like how do I find these resources, Lita? Um, my husband uh, was a pastor at Twin Lakes Church in town for 10 years, and they're a big church in town. And they get a lot of people who have needs. So call the big church in your town if you're not a part of that and say, hey, do you have a list of resources and referrals that you know about? They probably have already collected a lot of stuff. But know, know where would you take someone, right? Just have that kind of already. Um, that would be the first step if someone is at high risk. And then after that, what likely will happen is they may go to an inpatient um, place where they get stabilized. It might be for a couple weeks. It may be for, depending on how much money they have, it may be for longer. There's also something called an IOP, which is an intensive outpatient program. This is something where you get help for five days a week for about four or five hours a day. You can still be in school or have a job, um, but that's a level of care to help sustain you. A therapist or you can't do all of this work, okay? Don't put that on yourself. It's not your job to like snuggle 24-7 to make sure they're okay. That's just, right? Temporarily, yes, you may go, we're not leaving this person alone, but until you can get them to what they need, that's, right? So just know that you're a piece of this puzzle, okay? The intensive outpatient. So it's considered an IOP, an intensive outpatient program. And that's something you could maybe um, Google, and there might be things nearby. Um, okay, so let's, I want to talk about a safety plan. This is something that you can do for any level of assessment that you find out. Okay, they're moderate, or even if they're little, this is you can have, if they're low risk, this is still a great thing to have. And at the end, I'll tell you about an app that actually has all of this in it. So if you don't want to write it down, that's fine. Okay, so a safety plan can include, they all, it's all threes. I don't know, because of the Trinity? I don't know why they did that. <laughs> it's not a Christian thing. But, okay, three warning signs. So these are for the person. So they've said, I'm not okay. I need help. Um, I, I have a plan, but I really, you know, you, it's, they need this for themselves. They need to know their own warning signs for themselves. When I am not 
let's say, um, sleeping, or I'm drinking more, or I, my brain will not shut off. Those are my warning signs that says I'm not okay. You want to help increase their self-awareness. So then they can, they can say, oh, I'm not in a good spot. i got to call somebody, right? Because our twisted logic in that real depressive state is not very accurate. So if they have this written down and it's in their phone, they can just open it. Yes, yes. So this is something for them. You're helping them create the safety plan for them. Now, this plan, it'd be great if everybody knew it, who knew they weren't okay, right? So we're all on the same page. The second three are what are three coping strategies for them when they notice the warning signs? What do they do? Do they want to listen to worship music? Do they want to play their guitar? They could write in their journal. They can use an app, call a friend, right? Those are just how to cope when they're not okay. Then three reasons to live. If they can think about this when they're not really um, struggling in the moment, they can think a little bit more clearly. This is, you want them to think through this. It may be um, for their family. They may have a future goal that is really important to them, but right now feels out of reach, like you want to remind them of that. And then three crisis numbers that they can call. This can be hotlines. This can be local services that are hotlines. This can be you. You could be a person for them to call. Family, friends. And then three social settings for them to be redirected to, to redirect their mind, you know, and to connect with others. When we're this sad, we're, uh, we isolate, right? So if they know, okay, I'm not sleeping very well, and I'm not, I'm not doing very well, I know that these are three places I can go to that can help me not feel so alone. So maybe it's, it's a youth group, maybe it's going to church on a Sunday, um, maybe there's a local support group that they can go to. Um, that might be helpful for them to know about. And then lastly, three things to care for themselves. Showering. I know this, you know, when you're depressed, you don't, self-care just goes kind of into the toilet. So, and, and we know that when we change our body temperature, that does help our brain. So showering could be good. Maybe it's like... Um, taking a nap, going for a walk. The endorphins we get with exercise are really good for our brain too. So let me, let me do, do it again, okay? So three warning signs for them, three coping strategies, three reasons to live, three crisis numbers to call, three social settings to redirect their mind and connect with others, and three things to care for themselves by doing those things. Uh, let's see. Okay, I want to pivot to um, if you've maybe lost somebody. I don't know your stories, but the Lord brought you here, and I don't want you to leave without us talking about that, okay? Um, one thing I want you to know about grief, you may have heard like the stages of grief. Have you guys heard that? Kubler-Ross, you might have heard of Kubler-Ross. She's a, a, created these stages of grief. And 
I was trained on the stages of grief. And I can tell you, I recently learned that those are only applied. Kubler-Ross only wanted those for someone who just got a terminal diagnosis. This is not like a one-stop shop sort of, if I lost my job, these are the stages of grief I go through. So there you have it. <laughs> I was pretty surprised. Because we can have very complicated grief. It doesn't, grief is not this like, check, I just got through that stage. <laughs> it's, uh, we're, if we're made in God's image, our process is not going to always be in a nice little package. And I think that's what those stages do for us. So we can just erase those, okay? Um, secondary loss, that happens. Um, you may have a lot of undone feelings. You may have... If, if you know someone who has completed suicide, it's going to unearth your relationship with them, good, bad, and ugly. You might revisit some things. Um, you may be processing guilt or um, feeling responsible, like you should have known better, you should have stopped them. Um, and there's a lot of secondary things that come with that. that there's daily suffering. They may be relief. I can tell you I felt relief for my brother. I know he's with Jesus and he's free. And he suffered his whole life. His whole life he struggled. And he was suffering his whole life. So um, do I miss him? Am I sad about that? Am I still in process? Yes. This is not a completed perfect um, example. I'm in process. Um, and the goal of working through grief, to me, a lot of the re research the words, the language, they say completed grief. I just, as a Christian, I just go, that's not done till we're glorified. <laughs> I just think while we're living here, I'm still sad my dad didn't get to see my kids grow up. That's grief, right? It's not done. It's, it's, so I use language like resolve and integrate and not complete, okay? And I'm going to talk about an intervention that you guys can use to help process for yourself, okay? This can be used about any loss. It doesn't have to be about someone who's completed suicide. I've done this with a client um, who had a really tough job and had a lot of unresolved wounds. And so this is what we did, okay? So let me explain. So this right here is a timeline. And you can do this about like your relationship. So say um, you, it's uh, someone in your life. You, Say, say it's a breakup. <laughs> it can be about anything. Then it's about that specific thing, okay? And these lines would start the beginning and the end, okay? And then these lines represent moments, experiences with this person. The top half are the positive memories, which we want to acknowledge and give light to, but also the struggles, okay? And sometimes, because life is not either or, it's a whole lot of and, that line might go above the line and below the line. Because it, like I use this example, let's say you went on vacation to Tahoe. Look at that, that's fun. But well, the family car ride was a nightmare. <laughs> and someone puked the whole time or whatever. But we had this one little moment, we went on a nice hike, right? That's why there's this line, okay? Does that make sense? And then you plot it um, chronologically. You can put dates on there, too, if you want to. And then what you're going to do is you're going to ask yourself these three words, these three questions. You're going to ask yourself 
about each one of these. So it's as much as you want to noodle into this, you can, right? This can be just about the whole timeline. You can ask yourself these three things, or you can do that for each moment that you put down on this timeline, okay? You're going to ask yourself, okay, so if we do Tahoe, we might go, what would I have wanted to be different? What would I have wanted to be better? What would I would have wanted more of? So let me use pizza because I'm full-blooded Italian, if you can't tell by the nose. Let me use this as an example. Okay, let's say I ordered a veggie combo. And they brought me pepperoni. Okay, different, right? Better, my veggie combo had one mushroom on it. Would have wanted it to taste better, wasn't so awesome. On an English muffin roll, or whatever. <laughs> More, I only got one slice. So I liked what I got, I just wish I had more of it. So that's the difference between those three words, okay? And then once you plot this out, and it might take a long time, okay? This, you could do this about something that happened in your childhood. You can, it's, it can be just about your journey with a, a relationship with someone or a job, like I said. And then once you write that, find someone who loves you, who can hold space for you, who doesn't interrupt you, and to listen to your story. Doesn't have to be a professional. Doesn't. Maybe have a box of Kleenex. <laughs> Let it be a, a, a private place where you don't feel like you're going to get interrupted. Don't be rushed. And let them listen to you. Let them, tell, let, let, let them sit with you so you can tell them your story. Okay, That helps resolve some things. It helps integrate that stuff into your life. Um, let's see. Okay. Uh, at the end, I think, I'm not sure if I wrote these resources, but I want to tell you these little bit of things. Hospice, something that you should know, um, at least in Santa Clara County, this may not be true in other uh, counties, but hospice will provide therapy for people, support groups, individual, um, who have uh, family members or friends who have completed suicide. My mom was able to see a social worker for like months and months um, for free, actually. So I didn't know that, so I thought I'd pass that info along. There's actually a national foundation for suicide prevention. Um, the email, or the email? Website. Website is healingconversations at afsp.org. And they host an International Survivors of Suicide Loss Day. And that is just for people to come together, um, to connect, to understand, to share experience, to find hope. And actually, this year is November 19th. So you can go onto their website and find a little bit more about it if that's something that, that you'd like to go to. And then a NAMI, you may have heard of NAMI. It's the National Association for the Mentally Ill. Um, again, it's national, and they have support groups all over. You can go to, you can write NAMI support groups near me. These, these groups are run not by clinicians, but by other peers who have had some training, and they, it's just support. So I know in town there are support groups for family members, uh, for people who have family members who have mental health struggles, and then 
those groups meet, like, okay, it's for, let's say, family members who are in elementary school for kids. Like, so it's those family members who have kids with mental health issues that are young, maybe they're young adults, maybe they're their peers, or not peers, but their uh, partners. So those are support groups, and that's something that can be something um, if you have family members who are struggling to check out. Um, let's see. Okay, I'm going to go over some apps really quick. I think might be helpful. Um, and then I'll close this in prayer. Where are my apps? Hold on, I'm going to... Okay, so um, I think you guys have the hotline numbers that I put on there, um, but apps. So let me go through. I think some of them are on the back, too. There's one, the, the first one called Not Okay. That app is specifically for people who are struggling with suicide. So what's pretty fabulous about it. So the, the icon, the app icon is a speech bubble, a white speech bubble with like a hot pink Not Okay in the middle. And what it does is you have to create a, a profile. This is for the person who is struggling. They uh, will put in their information and support people's um, information so you can be on that. And what it does is there's a button on the app they just push. And then it's, it pushes out a text to the people, the three or four people in their contact list. And it has a little blurb that says, I'm not OK. I need help. Please text me, whatever. Um, and then they can say, I'm okay now, so they can let people know they're okay now. It actually has a location service on it, so it may be, I'm not okay, please come find me. Okay, that's pretty great, right? So that's one that's really helpful. There's another one called, um, well, it's, it's by the Jason Foundation. Um, this is a resource as well um, in the app. They have, it, this can be for people who are trying to support people who are struggling with suicide, or if they're struggling with suicide, there's different resources within that. They have a whole section in this app about how to, how to talk to a friend. Like a lot of the stuff we're talking about is in there, you can find. Um, and then it'll connect them to resources, whether that's just a hotline number, or, or whether it's facilities, inpatient, or IOPs that we kind of talked about. There's, it's like a national um, app. It's called uh, the Jason Foundation. So those are the ones that are more geared. Oh, and then the safety plan one. Remember with the threes? So this you can. This is an app you can find too. It looks like um, it has a light blue background and a, a plus that looks like the Red Cross, but it's white. And that's you have them download that, and then they can type in their threes of whatever, and then that way that's on their phone and you can screenshot it or whatever, um, but that way they have it when they're not okay and they need to have, what do I do? Um, okay, so those are good ones. Other ones that are more for just general mental health that I find really helpful, um, there's one for kids called Finch, F-I-N-C-H. I don't know if you remember Tamagotchis <laughs> or like Club Penguin, that was my kid's jam. There are these little like characters, and then you do certain things, and then you earn points. So this is essentially uh, for mental health. So you get this little bird that's a little finch, and you set goals for your day, like I'm gonna get up and shower, and you like challenges. You get points for that, 
and then you get to ha like you get a hat for your bird or so it's it's a basically it's called Finch F I N C H and it has a little bird in the icon but that's like you know if they're trying to work on their mental health and they're wanting to um, set goals for themselves I mean it's amazing how you know, a little cartoon character can motivate. Right, but that's great. Okay, so there's that one. There's one called What's Up app. It is um, not what's, wait, what's the other one? Is it the WhatsApp? It's What's Up app, okay? <laughs> right, so it's a hot pink background with a black hand on it. Um, this is just a wealth of information. So it will give the person an opportunity to process what they're thinking about, what they're feeling. It can access resources. Um, it has some in the moment when you're not okay, kind of more mindfulness practices um, that are in there. Um, there's, it's a, a lot of the, uh, the interventions are cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, you might have heard of that before. But those are things that they can do in the app um, that I, I like a lot. And then another one that I like uh, is called Dalio. It's D-A-Y-L-I-O. It's similar like Finch, where you pick a little emoji face for your day, and then you can write something out. And then you pick emojis connected to your behavior. And then um, it has uh, a section in there where it keeps track of all that. So you can look at the month, and it'll show you all the emojis you used. And you can look, oh, this week was hard, this week was better. It's really the goal for that one is to help connect how you feel with what you do. Because we know that what we do affects how we feel, and we know how we feel affects what we do. So that is just good information for them to kind of pay attention. Um, and then the last one I really like is called the Thought Diary. It's light blue and white. And that has even more stuff. And I think for that one, you, uh, you can use it for free, but then there's more things in there to pay for. I think it's like 60 bucks a year, but I uh, refer to it a lot for my clients um, because it helps them reframe thought, help them think about, um, just know how they feel, know what they think, and to try to make it a little bit more positive and accurate because um, um, the sooner we can be aware we're not okay, the sooner we can do something about it. So... Um, those are my apps. I, let me just, I want to read 2 Corinthians and then pray for you guys before you leave. And I'm happy to hang out and if you have questions. Um, and then if you, my daughter's book's over there. I can take Venmo if that's something you might want. Okay. All right. So 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 5 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort that we ourselves have received from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. Let me pray for you guys. Father God, thank you for the hope that you give. Thank you for the comfort that you give. Um, this world is challenging at times, and at times it feels impossible. 
But Lord, we thank you that um, your hope is beyond what we're experiencing, that you have purpose and meaning for us, that each individual in this room, you would have died just for them. The cross shows us our deep, deep value to you, and that can never be taken away. Thank you for that safety that you give, the comfort that you give. And I pray for these people, Lord, as they go off the mountain, that um, the light bulbs that went off and the experiences that they had and the learning that, that they've learned will make a difference in this place. Let them be light bearers and ambassadors of your kingdom. We thank you again for Mount Hermon, Lord, and we just bless them as they have the last few little moments together with friends and family. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for coming, you guys.